Thank you very much indeed, and a very good afternoon to all of you. It is very, very lovely to be here. I'm honoured to be asked. I think I was the seventh person that Dave asked, um, but I'm honoured to, to be on the list, um, and it's very good to be with you. Uh, in a few moments, I will read uh, the passage that we are looking at this afternoon. Uh, it's probably one that you know quite well, um, but I'll read it anyway um, so that you're uh, doubly familiar with it. Uh, but, but before I do so, I'd like you to imagine that across the front here, there's a kind of, there are numbers, and, num and one is here, and then over here is 10. So it's just like one, one of those things that you fill out a questionnaire. So one is over there, 10 is over there. I want you to picture where you would stand. You can just do it in your head. Um, the, the question is, how much do you like surprises? So if you, if you really, really, really hate surprises, you're going to be down here. And if surprises are the best thing in your life and you just can't get enough of them, then you're going to be here, and you might find that you, you put yourself somewhere in the middle. Um, so do you want to just turn to the maybe one or two people around you, just a number, We're looking for a number between one and ten on how much do you like surprises? Great. Um, so if I can have your attention, we'll do it in three goes. So who's, who's down this end? Who's a kind of one to a three? You don't like surprises. So there's no judgments, okay? Thank you. Who's in the middle? Who's kind of four, three to seven? Okay, a few of you. Who's up this end with me? Yes, look at you. Okay, great. Isn't it? So we're all very different when it comes to surprises, but Dave has asked me to look at some surprises in the passage, so I just needed to gauge where, how excited or not you were about finding surprises um, in the Bible. A friend of mine had a cat whose name was Rumpus. This is absolutely true. And uh, Rumpus was, uh, like many cats, a creature of habit. And Rumpus, for some reason or another, at the, uh, the start of the day, what he liked to do, they had a long corridor in his house uh, on the first floor, and Rumpus would stretch out at one end of the corridor, you know, limber up a little bit, and then would run quite fast all the way along the top corridor and would hop onto the toilet seat and then out of the window. Um, and that was kind of like his little morning thing. Uh, now, you can imagine that if you lived in Rumpus's house, one of the most important things to remember was to put down the toilet seat. So, one day, this is absolutely true, Rumpus does his little stretches and gets all ready and, you know, canters down, launches into the air, and then, of course, it's too late, isn't it? If the, if the toilet lid's not down. And so, when, so my friend just heard splash and lots of sort of you know, painful meowing. And, and Rumpus was literally stuck in the toilet, couldn't get out, so had to be rescued. Um, and uh, I think, I mean, I don't think many cats really like surprise. They don't like being surprised, do they? They don't mind surprising other things. Um, but uh, Rumpus did not enjoy that experience. Um, I'm going to tell you four things that you need to know before we hear our passage read uh, very briefly. Um, you may know some of them. Uh, Dave probably knows at least three of the four. Um, but just that, that it's helpful background that is going to, I think, help all of us understand, appreciate, and sort of be able to imagine what is going on in this passage. So here are the four things. Number one, when King David 
back in the day, long time ago, when King David was uh, first conquering the place that became Jerusalem, it was um, the people that lived there were a group called the Jebusites. Dave knew that, didn't you, Dave? Exactly. And this is all told in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 5. And when David and his men were trying to attack the hill that was Jerusalem, the Jebusites taunted David and his men. And they said, well, I'm sure maybe the Bible's cleaned up a bit because I think there's probably some some, uh, some you know, colorful language in there. They taunted them and they said, look, the blind and the lame can protect this city. It's so well fortified. You're never going to get in. So even our blind and lame from amongst this community could keep you lot out. And David, of course, won the day, won the city. But one of the things that he did, and I'm not sure that he talked to God about it beforehand, one of the things he did was to say that the blind and the lame were no longer welcome in his palace. It was like a, maybe like a, an act of revenge against the Jebusites to sort of put them in their place because of the way that he'd been taunted. So you just need to hold that in your mind because it's going to become useful in a little moment. Number two, Micah, who was a prophet working at about the same time uh, as Isaiah living uh, then. And uh, Micah, in chapter seven of his book, uh, uses uh, to picture uh, God's disappointment uh, in the people of Israel. He uses this image, and the image is of somebody who wants to go and gather some summer fruit. So imagine, I guess here in Winchester, it's, you know, it's that moment where you go and look for blackberries, maybe, in the hedgerows. And, you know, and you're all excited and you've got your punnets and you've, you've got your little gloves or whatever it is you need. And you've, got, you've kind of got all your stuff and you go out and you're thinking, oh, I know exactly. You know, normally that bush is absolutely dripping full of blackberries. And you get there and there's not a thing on the bush. And there's that sense of intense disappointment. And Micah uses that experience but he wasn't looking for blackberries. I don't think they have blackberries in Israel, do they? Probably not. No, I don't think so. So not blackberries, but figs. And he, he uses that, literally that experience of, I was so excited about going and gathering the early figs. And when I got there, there was nothing there. And it was a, a picture for him of the way that the people of Israel had not been fruitful They hadn't lived up to what God had called them to be. And so he uses that image uh, maybe 700 years or so before Jesus. The third thing you need to know uh, comes from Isaiah, and it comes from Isaiah 56. Isaiah was another prophet uh, working uh, about seven, 800 years uh, before uh, Jesus came. And uh, in Isaiah 56, verses 6 and 7, Isaiah makes a prophecy that one day, as he describes it, foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord have their own place in the temple. And God says of these foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, I will give them joy in my house of prayer. So that's seven, eight hundred years before Jesus. 
one of the facets of Isaiah's um, future, picture of God's future is that um, people who are not, you know, people who are Gentiles, people who are outside the faith uh, will, in a sense, be welcomed and acknowledged and will be able to share in the joy of worship of uh, the people of God in the temple. That's number three. Here's the fourth thing, then we'll hear the reading. The fourth thing is in the Bible, so this is, that's kind of seven, eight hundred years before Jesus. When we get to the time of Jesus, all of that had sort of slightly twisted and turned, and it wasn't quite as clear in the mind of Jesus' contemporaries as it was in the minds of Isaiah and of Micah. And that was partly because they'd had a terrible time. You know, so they kept on getting invaded. And, you know, just succession of uh, invaders. Of course, at the time of Jesus, uh, Jerusalem and the whole of Israel, but particularly Jerusalem, uh, was uh, occupied by the Roman army. But there had been several other armies before. The Romans were not the first. And so that had changed and twisted the way that uh, the people of Jerusalem felt about foreigners or Gentiles or people who were outside uh, the faith. Uh, these people who Isaiah had foreseen as being brought in to the people of God, to most of the people of Jerusalem, these people, the foreigners, were a problem. They were the people who kept on showing up and invading and causing them misery. And so in one human sense, it's not at all surprising that they felt so, uh, so ill towards uh, the succession of invading armies that they had, which meant that by the time of the first century, people's hope in Jerusalem for the Messiah and the temple was that the Messiah would clear all of the foreigners out of the temple. That was the hope. So when Messiah comes, what will he do? All these troublesome, annoying, pagan Gentiles who keep on coming and taking over our places of worship, Messiah is going to clear those people away. He's going to, he's going to purge the temple and it's going to return to what it always should be, a place that is exclusively for God's Jewish racial people. And that was the hope at the time. Now, we don't have to agree with the hope, but it's good that we understand the hope and maybe understand what lies behind the hope. So as when Jesus comes, the hope for Messiah and the temple is that Messiah is going to clear away all these troublesome foreigners. So with those four things in mind, firstly, how David conquered Jerusalem, the taunting that he got, that even the blind and the lame could be his men and his army and his decision that they would have no place within his palace. Secondly, Micah's vision of disappointment wanted to go and collect the early figs. There's nothing there, a picture of the lack of, of fruitfulness, uh, the, the lack of effectiveness of his contemporaries as servants of God. Thirdly, Isaiah's vision uh, that uh, the people who were outside the faith would be drawn in and would share in the joy of the worship of God in the temple. And then lastly, 
that sense of contemporary hope at the time of Jesus, that, that the Messiah would run the pagans, the foreigners, out of town. That would be his, his first job, run them into the sea. So we get to Matthew 21, uh, and I'll read from verses 12 through to 22. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Now, there is lots in that passage, but I'm going to concentrate on what I read as the four key surprises uh, that we have in the passage. And I'll list those surprises, and then we'll try and, in a sense, explore and find out what's going on. The first one uh, comes in verse 12, and that is the first surprise, maybe the biggest, is Jesus' radical, you could well say violent, certainly provocative action of overturning the tables and the benches of the money changers and those who are selling doves. And the surprise is that this is a side of Jesus that we've not seen before. It certainly isn't gentle Jesus, meek and mild. It's not Jesus being really, really nice to children. It's not Jesus, in a sense, picking out uh, people who are outcasts on the edge of things and showing them extraordinary compassion one-to-one. -one. It's, I mean, imagine what would happen if Anya jumped up and started turning all these tables over. You know, we would be gobsmacked. It's not behavior that we associate ish with Anya you know it's it's you know it, it, it would be it, it would be against her character and what we know of her and and that's how it feels isn't it to see Jesus doing this we, we know that Jesus has been you know sparring arguing instance, there's been controversy 
between him and much of the religious establishment. We, we know that. And, and we know, because it comes really early, that they are conspiring and thinking, how do we get rid of him? But we are genuinely surprised. I think not at his passion. We understand that Jesus is passionate. We understand that he loves God. But we've never seen him throw things around before. We've never seen him cause a disturbance in quite this way. And so that is a genuine surprise. The second one uh, comes a couple of verses later in verse 14. Jesus is healing the blind and the lame uh, at the Temple Mount. And the surprise there is not that Jesus is healing them, because we've had that all along. The surprise there is where he's healing them. He's healing them on the Temple Mount, the place where David said, no blind, no lame. So something has happened to draw those people to that place, in a sense to break the taboos and the constraints that would have existed and to approach Jesus as the son of David, expecting to be healed. That's the surprise that they choose that place uh, to do so. Uh, the third surprise is that we have some new best friends in this passage. Uh, the new best friends are the chief priests and the scribes. They have not been best friends before, uh, but they have become best friends. And the surprise is that they were naturally very suspicious of each other. It was a bit like cavaliers and roundheads becoming best friends. Uh, they were two very, they're both religious, both passionately love God, but it would be like the dean of St. Paul's Cathedral in London sort of hanging out with the verger at some rural church in the middle of nowhere. There was more that seemed to separate them than united them. But in this passage, suddenly, they're bezies together. And the surprise is, why? Because they've never been bezies before. Lastly, uh, we have Jesus cursing a fig tree for not having any fruit on it and then seeing the, the fig tree wither. And again, this is surprising because at first appearance, it looks like Jesus is being rather pet, petulant or even childish. I, I, outwardly speaking or in superficially speaking it, it feels like the kind of thing that I would do if I had superpowers so if I had superpowers that would be the kind of stuff that I'd do you know like create create a wonderful case of champagne you know or when I go out blackberry picking in in August and there are no blackberries on a bush I might be so cross that I kind of curse the bush because it's let me down it looks petulant doesn't it looks childish why why Jesus there's no fault of the fig tree that there's no fruit on it so why are you blaming the tree so that's the surprise there just understanding what is going on and in the next 10 minutes or so, 12 maybe, I will try and uh, answer those surprises. Overall, it'd be fair to say, we're not surprised that Jesus is surprising because we're kind of used to Jesus being surprising. In fact, we kind of love that about Jesus, that he is surprising, he confounds us, he turns things on its head. So that's fine. Jesus being surprising is cool. What maybe is not so cool is that the way he is surprising 
challenges what we think about him and how we understand what he's doing, particularly the first and the last, particularly the turning over of the tables and the cursing of the tree. So, four questions. Why did Jesus drive out the money changers and the dove sellers? We need to see this in continuity with what James talked about last week with Jesus' triumphal entry. So, this is part of Jesus saying, I'm the Messiah, but I'm not the Messiah that you expected. And last week with the triumphal entry in particular, you know, you saw the way that uh, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was, of course, a massive claim to authority because he's picking up those uh, Old Testament uh, promises. The, the people receive his entry into Jerusalem as a sign of his kingship, that he's, he's come as a great leader with all, all of that hope and that wave of enthusiasm. So we need to see this in continuity with that. It's not surprising that the Messiah goes to the temple. That is not surprising at all. That's what Messiahs were expected to do. But it is surprising to see the Messiah clearing the temple for foreigners as opposed to clearing the temple of foreigners. That was the expectation. So you could, you know, people, I say, in a sense, clocked where Jesus was going. The hope that might well have been risen, rising in their hearts was Jesus is going to restore the temple to its ancient purity as a place just for us Jews to worship, to do so without being hassled or flustered by other people. This takes place in uh, what was called the outer court of the Gentiles. Now, many of you know this. You know, in a sense, you know this geography, which is really important. The outer court of the Gentiles was the first bit of the temple. And if you were a Gentile, it was as far as you could get. And then the next bit in from there was the court of the women. So, ladies, you were allowed to go one step further. The next one in from there was for boys only. Sorry. And then the next one again uh, was, so it kind of got increasingly kind of exclusive as you went through the different courts. This happens in the first court, the court of the Gentiles, and it was there that all these money changers and dove sellers were set up. And so if you were a Gentile coming to take part in the worship of the temple, you were doing so alongside people shouting and sheep bleating and general noise and kerfuffle. And it wasn't, you know, it was a very strong signal to the Gentiles that they were not welcome or included in what was going on. Uh, this then reveals a tension with Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah's prophecy was that it should be a house of prayer for all nations. And instead, what has happened is that because you had to change your money, so because people came from all over the Middle East, when you came, you had to change your money for temple shekels. And then you could, once you got your temple shekels, which was a bit like getting money changed at the airport, so that you know, the, the rates of exchange weren't particularly helpful or in your favor, then you took your temple shekel and you went and bought your lamb or your dove, whatever it is. But 
in the, exactly the same space, that's where people were, in theory, uh, who were Gentiles, were trying to worship. This seems to be an acted parable on Jesus' part against the whole system. It's not Jesus taking on individual sellers or even individual buyers. It doesn't seem to be um, Jesus saying, you know, I think there's extortion going on here, as though somehow, you know, the, the system was almost definitely rigged, but in a sense people had to make a living. It was an acted out parable against the whole system, but particularly the whole system as it excluded people that God wanted to be included. This is what the temple should be, Jesus is saying. It should be a place for all. There's no doubt that the tables would have been reinstated probably minutes after Jesus left. The benches would have been put back, lambs would have been caught, doves would have been returned to their cages. But Jesus seems to be saying or declaring that the temple as a place has been found so wanting, so short of what God had intended for it, that it's now redundant. And since it's lost its right to be a place of worship and where God meets his people. It, it, it's so broken that it can no longer do what it was asked to do. And if you want to get a sense of the scandal of that, then think for a moment what would happen if Dave Fenton, after service, set up a little stall just over there in the welcome area, and he said... Anybody need to renew or update their passport? I can do it for a tenner. Just come, you know, I'll do the paperwork, I'll give you your new passport, and you'll be absolutely fine. Now, no one's going to buy a passport from Dave Fenton, are they? Because you're thinking, the second I get to the border, that passport that Dave gives me is not going to get me very far. It's not, it, you know, if you want a passport, you have to go to the passport office. That's the government's job to do that. It's not Dave's job. And Jesus seems to be saying the temple that was supposed to be the place where God and people come together, it's so broken, it's lost its way so completely that it's now redundant. And in the passages that follow, Jesus, but he doesn't say it here yet, he begins to spell out that I, Jesus, I am going to do and achieve what the temple never could. And we're going to be scandalized by that in the weeks to come. In the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, there's language used of shadow and reality, which I think is quite helpful and important. That the, the, the temple, the building, was the shadow of what was to come. It was, a kind of, it was a, an outline. It was, it was there for a season, but no longer. It was never actually going to be able to carry the weight of all that it needed to be. But it was a shadow that looked forward to the reality of Jesus coming. So that's the first one. Secondly, why did Jesus welcome the blind and the lame and the children? Now, of course, he'd been doing so all along. This had been part of who he was. That's part of the wonder 
if you are a disciple of Jesus. It's part of the problem if you like religion to be about feeling good about yourself and looking down on others. But Jesus here is showing that he is the true son of David. And if you remember, David actually made an exception to his rule about the blind and the lame. And that was with Mephibosheth, who, if you remember, was uh, the son of his dear friend Jonathan, who was killed in battle. And he was, he was disabled, born badly disabled, couldn't walk properly. And Mephibosheth, when David won the victory and became the king, Mephibosheth was absolutely convinced that as has happened thousands of times in history, because he was part of the old king's family, plus the fact that he was a cripple, there was only one thing that was going to happen to him. He was going to be taken outside and killed. But David, because of his love for Jonathan, remembers Mephibosheth and welcomes him to his table. So even David, flawed though he was, had made this great exception. And Jesus is saying, this is the kind of Messiah who welcomes the blind, the lame. I delight in children being a full part in what's going on. It's this sense that we get so often in the Gospels of radical inclusion as opposed to drawing lots of strict lines and trying to keep most people outside of the lines. Number three, what's brought the chief priests and the teachers of the law together? The chief priests, if you like, were the, the metropolitan hotshots. They were the big guns uh, from the city. That's where they hung out. And uh, the, the temple, that was their game. That was where they did their thing. They were important, powerful power brokers in the city, although they were frustrated by the presence of the Romans because they didn't like being answerable uh, to them, as we can imagine. So that's the chief priests. Now, for them, it was one thing for Jesus to be causing a sensation and, in a sense, stirring up the crowds out in the provinces, out in the back of the beyond. But now, he's brought all of that to Jerusalem and the temple's reputation and, in a sense, the stability of their political power in the city is now being threatened. So, you know what happens? You know, when big guns are threatened, they get the big guns out and they start to see what a serious threat Jesus is. And as so often throughout history, you know, they find a common friend in another enemy of Jesus. And so the reason that the chief priests and the scribes, outwardly so different, the reason that they come together at this moment is because although they disagree on lots of theology, and though they have very different mindsets, one metropolitan big city, other, you know, a bit more suspicious of the big institution, much more about what happens locally, they're united in seeing Jesus as a significant threat to their way of life. They fear and dislike different things about him, but they both fear and dislike him. Lastly, why does Jesus curse the fig tree? Now, this is another acted-out parable. And it's, it really you have to see this as a series of three. Jesus' triumphal entry with uh, all that came uh, 
that in a sense, with his claim for messiahship by choosing the donkey, referencing back to the Old Testament, coming in on the very eve of Passover, or the, the, in a sense, the adulation that he receives. So that's part one. Part two is then Jesus going to the temple and essentially saying, the temple's done now. It's redundant. It's failed. It, it's not been the place that God needed it to be. And then the third part, since the, the third in the series, is the cursing of the fig tree. Do you remember Micah? Of course, Micah's, Micah used this image of disappointment, that the early figs weren't there, and used that as a picture of God's disappointment, that the, the people had not borne the fruit that he called them to bear. Now, if you're, you want to get very technical, the fig tree had two lots of fruit. It had early fruit that Micah talked about, and then it had later fruit. And in the spring, which is when this is taking place, just before the Passover, little nodules would appear on um, the fig trees. And that was a sign that they would fruit well later in the year. The nodules were not the fruit yet, but plenty of those meant the tree would be fruitful later in the year. So this is a parable, essentially an acted out parable, against superficial flourishing. From 20, 30, 40 meters away, the fig tree was in leaf. So therefore, it looked as though it was flourishing. It was only on closer inspection that you could see that there was no early fruit and so therefore there was going to be no main fruit later in that year. Jesus is saying the same is true of the temple specifically, which he's just been to. He's just declared redundant. So the same is true of the temple. You can't say of the temple that there's not a whole lot of things going on there. It's busy. It's frenetic. There are rotors. Church suite is doing its thing. Everyone's being organized. It's noisy. There's stuff happening continuously. The problem is not lack of activity. The problem is of it only superficially flourishing. And in the depths of its being, and in the depths of the worship that it was calling people to, it was failing. So Jesus cursing the fig tree is a very powerful symbol of God's judgment on the temple in particular and on the people of Israel more generally, that they had not borne the fruit that Jesus had called them to. Let me close. No doubt, after the, uh, this episode, the tables were put back, as I said. The little lambs were caught and sold off. The moneylenders picked up their shekels and their piles of Greek coins and Roman coins and organized themselves. The doves, some flew off, some were caught and put back in. The benches were straightened. Things were put back to normal. Presumably, some bemused person came and cut down the fig tree because it was withered, it was no more, it was no good to anybody or anything, so that got cut down. But nothing happened yet. 
one sense, life went back to normal after that day. And so for the outlines of the fulfillment of what we see Jesus doing, we have to nip forward just momentarily. And I, just let me end with these three things. Firstly, of course, later that week, come Friday, suddenly, you know, all the attention is on Golgotha and the crucifixion of Jesus and all that is happening there. And then suddenly, for a split second, one verse, the camera's focus switches from outside the city, switches for 10 seconds to the temple, back where we were. What happens in the temple? Massive great curtain that is in that inner court. It is the, it is the ultimate sign of exclusion that sinful people can't come near a holy God. Stands right there at the heart of the temple. It's torn in two. It's the beginning of the fulfillment of what Jesus said. The temple is redundant. What the temple was a shadow of, he has now come to achieve. Secondly, you go forward 35 years or so, and in AD 70, the temple is destroyed by the Romans. Again, a very powerful sign and symbol. No one is saying that the Romans were right or justified to do this. But in a sense, as Jesus had warned, every single stone in the temple was going to be taken down and pulled apart. And then thirdly, we see the very, 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 very beginning of a different attitude to worship and places and buildings. And of course, for the first two, three hundred years of the life of the early church, we didn't have buildings as we know them. Nothing like this existed. It was in homes and under trees. But there is in here the seeds of a very, very different way of worshipping where our heart is always turned out, where we pray fervently that our walls are not keeping people away from us. And I think I've mentioned this before, but I keep coming back to the person in my previous church who emailed me, having never come to church before, and actually having had some fairly awful things happen to her, that she had then internalized and thought were her fault. And so she emailed me and she said, I'm longing to come to your church, but I'm terrified that if I come to your church, if I walk through the door of your church, then lightning will strike me down or God will kill me for daring to enter your church. Man, I loved answering that email such a lot to say so powerful and so while we look back and we can understand or certainly begin to understand all that Jesus did we, we do have to check ourselves because religious people that includes us do have like an inbuilt tendency to become judgmental and to become unwelcoming or to become selective. 
And the power of all that is going on in this passage is taking us in exactly the opposite direction. Now, I've said plenty, so I'm going to stop now. Um, I'd love you in your groups maybe to choose of the four surprises. So the surprises are the overturning of the, of the, the benches and the tables. That's the first one. The second one is Jesus healing the blind and the lame. The third one is this new bestie friendship, chief priests and um, scribes. Uh, and sorry, and chief and scribes and, and the teachers of the law. Last one is um, the cursing of the fig tree. W- which one of those do you find most truly surprising? So just so that's quite hopefully quite easy just to pick one of the four of those. And the second thing uh, to question just to to think about briefly is how does this passage, with all of its surprises, how does it add to our understanding? of who Jesus is and what he came to do and how does it help us understand what's going to happen at the cross. So those kind of, which was the biggest surprise? How does it fill out our understanding of Jesus, his mission, in particular his cross? And then we'll maybe feedback from tables in, say, 10 minutes or so. Is that about right? Great. Okay. Thank you. I'll be around if you need to come and find me for any questions. Thank you very much.